a Bible with you today, I would invite you to use one of the chairback Bibles. It should be nearby and in front of you. You'll find uh, the text this morning printed there on page 896. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week, which is there in verse 22 of John chapter 10, and take it all the way through the end of the chapter today. So let me uh, read that second half of John chapter 10, and then uh, pray for God's blessing on our study and and we'll begin together. So here now, once again, as the Lord speaks to you uh, through his perfect word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And not one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of the God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that Jesus said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands Let's pray once again. God, our souls are before you this day, even as our ways are before you. And when our hearts melt away for sorrow and even from sin, uh, we pray that you would strengthen us this day according to your word. We know that you are good and that you do good. Teach us uh, your truth today. In your steadfast love, give us life that we might believe the testimony of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes it's true that a large group of people can hear the exact same thing delivered at the exact same time in the exact same place and respond in completely different ways. I'm sure many of you know that every single year early on in our nation's 
political calendar, we have something of an illustration of that writ large for us in the State of the Union address because the president speaks. And then after he's done speaking, what do we begin to see? A radical divide in a response to what he has just said. Members of his own party, eager to pump the positivity behind the platform, speak about everything good in it, all that's right in it, all that it promises in a proper way, and members of the opposite political party are quick to show everything that's wrong in it, and what failed about it, and what needs to be better within the message. They heard the same thing in the same place at the same time and couldn't respond more differently to the same words. And what we find as we read John's gospel and no doubt any gospel in the New Testament is the exact same thing happened all the time with Jesus. That you have crowds of people surrounding Jesus and they hear him say the same words in the same setting delivered in the same way and watch this radical divide in the response follow. And that's exactly what we're going to find again in our text today. It's a text that's all about belief, as this is a gospel we know by now, I trust, if you've been with us these number of months we've in our study of John's gospel. This is a gospel all, all about belief, isn't it? He's telling us from start to finish, John's telling us he's writing these things that we might believe that Jesus is God's Son. And that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Five times our passage speaks about belief. Some people are believing. Some people are not believing. And they're hearing the exact same message from Jesus. But in a way that John unfolds for us in this text today, he's going to help us understand why it is that people don't believe in Jesus. Certainly, it's going to be, by way of implication, it shows us why people do believe in Jesus. But principally before us is actually to confront the reality of why so many people can see the truth of Christ right in front of them, hear the truth of Christ right in front of them, and still reject him outright. You don't even have to be aware, do you, of too much of William Shakespeare's works to know that in one of his long-winded soliloquies, this character named Hamlet, in a kind of off-handed statement, said, to be or not to be. Uh, that is the question. And I have a preacher friend that likes to just iterate on that well-known statement in light of John's gospel to say, to believe or not to believe. That really is the question. And that's what we're going to see this morning in our text. The simple theme that I want to put before your minds and hearts attention is you must believe in Jesus Christ. This is a passage primarily consumed with men who do not believe in Jesus. But we're going to see reasons for belief along the way today. So three simple words are going to guide us. Testimony, security, and identity. So first you must believe the testimony about Jesus. You'll notice John picks up the story in the middle of chapter 10 with a timestamp of sorts. He loves to do this. He tells us it was at the Feast of Dedication that was taking place in Jerusalem where we find ourselves this morning. And so the text actually is going to continue and conclude rather significantly, we'll see by the end, what we can refer to as this festival cycle that belongs to John's gospel from chapter 5 through chapter 10 because over and over what we've seen in these chapters is Jesus primarily giving sermons He's interacting and discussing and speaking with people about who he is, 
against the backdrop of these significant feasts in Israel's religious calendar. There was Jesus speaking during the Feast of Passover. There's Jesus speaking during the uh, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Here's now Jesus getting ready to speak again, but it's during what's referred to here as the Feast of Dedication. It's an extra-biblical feast, actually, in the Jewish religious calendar. Kids, that means the Lord didn't require it in his word. It's a feast that commemorates the rededication and purification of the temple many centuries before Jesus' time when it was freed from the desecration that belonged to a Roman ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, You might know that feast because it continues today in Judaism as Hanukkah. And it happens, you'll notice, at the end of the year. Because we're told at the end of verse 22 to 23, it was that winter that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Colonnade of Solomon, if you can picture the scene, it's on the east side of the temple. There's these massive, majestic pillars you know, undergirding and holding up this large roof, which was a perfect place to kind of keep warm in the wintry winds that would whip through Jerusalem there in the month of, of December. And, and surely it's, it's no accident, as John's recording of this passage, that it's, it's there that Jesus is going to confront uh, these religious leaders in wintertime when their soul is so full of the winter of their sin and unbelief. Because you'll notice they gather around Jesus and we're told in verse 24, they ask him a question. In that cold moment in the colonnade, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the more literal, literal rendering of the question in verse 25 is something like, when will you lift our souls up? And it's possible that they're asking that question with genuine curiosity. Okay, so Jesus, how long is it going to be until you tell us whether or not you're the Messiah? But I think it's much better to translate it as some might in our more English to try to capture the meaning of the text. How long are you going to keep annoying us, Jesus? Are you the Christ or not? That language there of gathered around is actually the language of encircling that would often belong in a military maneuver of an army encircling their enemy and their opponent. So you can picture here the religious leaders, they've got Jesus trapped there in Solomon's portico. They're trying to encircle him to answer this question that no doubt they intend to use as a trap to get rid of of Jesus. And he responds quite simply, doesn't he? Verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, Jesus actually hasn't, and this is the end of Jesus' ministry. He's only a few months away from dying at this point. And in his previous three years, he actually hasn't ever told in John's gospel, the religious leaders, whether or not he really is the Messiah. It's only happened on two specific occasions, to the woman at the well in chapter 4, to the man healed of his blindness in chapter 9. Jesus has never actually told him, yes, I am the Messiah. It's one of the more... A striking things, if you ever read through any of the Lord's Gospels in, in one sitting, uh, you'll, you'll see striking you over and over how often Jesus hides his messianic identity from people. That he doesn't want people to know that he actually is the Messiah. 
And in all likelihood, the reason for that is because he knows, especially with these religious leaders in Jerusalem, the connotation of the Messiah by that point in Jewish life had been, been so kind of full of all of this military and political meaning that the Messiah would show up and finally his purpose was to deliver them, liberate them from Roman oppression. And Jesus knows that really isn't his purpose and, and mission. And so he's, he's not sharing the reality of his messianic identity because they're just going to go off and do what they ought not to do with it which is try to bring the liberation of Israel at that point. So he hasn't told them with his words whether or not he's the Messiah. But you'll notice again, he says, I actually have told you, verse 25, through my works. So think about everything Jesus has done to this point in John's gospel with works. Think about to chapter 2. He turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He healed a man's son that was on his deathbed. He healed a paralytic who had been paralyzed for nearly 40 years. He fed thousands of people with two small fish, five loaves of bread. Only a few weeks ago, we saw that he healed a man that was born blind. And what Jesus is saying is, all of these works, they testify to the answer to your question. The Messiah is here. The truth is right in front of you through my works, and you're missing it. And don't you think that there are many people today that miss the truth and testimony of Jesus because they don't see what the works of Christ communicate? I mean, you see, if you have eyes to observe, Christ building his church throughout the nations and the gates of hell falling before it. You see souls amazingly, sovereignly and supernaturally converted to Jesus Christ. You see people putting sins to death in the power of the Spirit. You see relationships restored in a way that only God's grace and power could ever explain. And still, maybe you miss the windows of those works windows through which you're meant to see the truth and testimony of Jesus Christ. You'll notice he goes on to explain the reason why they continue to miss the truth. Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So as best we can tell, verse 22 picks up from the first half of John chapter 10, several months after Jesus had given what we looked at last week and we might call is, is the Good Shepherd Discourse. In chapter 9, he healed this man that was born blind. It was this messianic work that was clearly meant to reveal Jesus' identity as the Messiah. And these religious leaders, they rejected that truth. They refused to believe that truth, even were content to attribute to Jesus demonic power in that moment, and they revealed to themselves, or even before the watching world of Israel, that they were blind guides among God's people, that they were bad shepherds, that a true rescuer and shepherd was needed. And so it's why in chapter 10, verse 11 and 14, Jesus simply says, I am the good shepherd. But whereas the first half of John 10 simply announces that the religious leaders are bad shepherds, a more shocking and stunning truth actually comes in our text that we just read. It's not just that they're disqualified shepherds. These men that 
everyone in Israel would have assumed was on the inside track to eternal life, they're not even a part of the sheep. They do not believe, Jesus says, because they don't belong to the Father. And maybe you'll notice how even in this simple verse there, verse 26, we get these twin truths that often swirl about in Scripture that sometimes God's people have a hard time understanding or even fully reconciling the twin truths of man is utterly responsible to believe in Christ Jesus. And the Lord is utterly sovereign over that very belief. You do not believe because you do not belong. You must believe the testimony about Jesus. Now as verse 27 continues, I want you to see how the text calls us to believe the security in Jesus. Because he continues the shepherding metaphor, doesn't he? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's useful to review it, that ancient agricultural context. You know, you would often find uh, people, shepherds, they would put their flock in this sheep pen that they had constructed, and such was the nature of a shepherd's wage. Usually they would kind of split the cost of that sheep pen, split the cost of the hired hand that would watch over that sheepfold at, at night. So multiple herds would be in one sheep pen overnight, and then when the shepherd came out in the morning to bring his sheep out to pasture, he would stand at the gate and he wouldn't shove his sheep out of the gate. He just would call them by name. And his sheep would come out, the ones that belonged to him. And Jesus is saying, of course, those that belong to me are the ones that believe my voice. They hear the testimony and respond to the truth. And what he's going to go on and give us in verse 28 and following are some of these richest truths about God's sovereign care over his sheep, the ones that believe in him. I mean, earlier this spring, a friend of mine asked me to write a foreword to a translation he was doing of an old pamphlet that Charles Spurgeon wrote. It's really a sermon. It was simply titled, A Defense of Calvinism. And in Spurgeon's time, the late 19th century, this prince of preachers was, was always earnest and, and dogmatic in defending what has often been called in recent centuries of Protestant history as the doctrines of Calvinism. But Spurgeon loved to quip that he didn't even like the name uh, Calvinism. He said in one sermon, if anyone should ask me what I mean by Calvinist, I should reply, he is one who says, salvation is of the Lord. I cannot find in Scripture any other doctrine than this. It is the essence of the Bible. And so as I was working my way through this forward and thinking about the way in which we could communicate something of the glory of God's sovereignty, I came across another quote that Spurgeon said where he said, no attribute is more comforting to God's children than that of his sovereignty. And I hope you would say that's true that the terms and labels are not nearly as important as the comfort that the doctrine Scripture reveals. That God is sovereign in the salvation of His people. And I want to show you two things according to our passage that He's sovereign over. First is, of course, He's sovereign over the salvation of His sheep. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Uh, that's linked, isn't it, to verse 10 of chapter 10 where He says, I come that they may have life, that they may have it 
abundantly. Because that's what every person deserves. Death forever. And yet the grace of the good shepherd is people get what they don't deserve. Which is life everlasting and abundant. That the penalty, the punishment that we ought to receive the wrath of God poured out upon us forever and ever. Jesus came to lay down his life for the sheep. That he might die as a slaughtered lamb, spotless and pure in the place of sinners. That the preaching of the gospel can sound like it does from the lips of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He's a sovereign over the salvation. He says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. That kind of power and salvation is certainly a part of why he can say, secondly, he's sovereign over the protection of his sheep. You see, verse 28 continues, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Maybe you can picture children, what so often happens when you're young, you're playing with friends or you're playing with family members, perhaps even siblings. And you're desiring something. And so what your sinful little heart so often want to do, snatch something that you so desperately desire. I mean, the word here actually does connote violence. It was something that was used back in John chapter 6, verse 15, when after the feeding of the 5,000, the people wanted to snatch Jesus and make him king. Now, what is Jesus saying is that the preservation of his sheep doesn't belong to the power of the sheep. It belongs to the power of the good shepherd. That Satan can't snatch sheep from Jesus. False teachers can't snatch sheep from Jesus. Persecuting powers can't snatch sheep from Jesus. Those that the Father has given to him, he saves. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Those that the Father gives to him, no one can take from his hand. What good news that is, is sometimes you feel like your grip on the Lord is wavering. And it might be. But to those who believe in the security of Jesus, what's the grip that really matters? The Lord from whom a hand cannot take a single one of his sheep. So you must believe the testimony, believe in the security. And now you must believe the identity of Jesus. You see verse 29, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I mean, it's simple what Jesus is saying here, actually in kind of the original meaning. He's saying, My mission and purpose is the exact same as the Father's mission and purpose. I can protect the sheep in the exact same way that the Father can protect the sheep. We're doing the same thing, is what he says. And that's true. The Jews also recognize the deeper underlying truth in what he's just said. Because kids, what has he just said? I and the Father are one. I am God in the flesh. So it's why they do what they do. You'll notice in verse 31, they race off, don't they, to grab stones, to slay him. And Jesus interrupts the proceedings with a question. 
Which is, it's a striking thing when you think about it. I mean, he's just said, I and the Father are one. And before him, there among these majestic, massive columns in Solomon's colonnade, he sees religious leaders racing to the rocks, coming back, no doubt, with anger and hatred, fuming and foaming, perhaps, even from their lips. They stand with their arms upstraged, ready to throw stones to pulverize him into a bloody pulp. And he says, hey, can I ask you a question? He's not shouting. He's not crying. He's not running. Hey, hold on a second. Before you release the rocks, just answer me this. It's a picture, isn't it, of courage. Because he says, notice verse 32. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So he stops their stoning with the question. And I hope you know that True Christian courage, it it looks like what Jesus communicates here. That when a soul is shaped according to Christ and saturated in the word of Christ, Christian courage isn't loud. It usually is not nearly as demonstrative as such courageous Christians think it is. It's often quite measured, quite simple, quite firm and fixed, completely calm and collected. In the moment. So which one of the works are you going to stone me for? Jesus says. Well, the Jews say, well, it's not for any of those works. Look at verse 33. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. I hope you see the irony in what they've just said. We're going to kill you, Jesus, because you're a man that made yourself Because what's the truth of the situation according to God's word? He is God who made himself man. And they're stumbling over the reality of his incarnation altogether. And it's it's striking too, isn't it? I hope that you recognize. They're simply saying, Jesus, we're fine with all your works. We just can't deal with what you've said. How many people today are, are fine with the Lord working, but don't want to believe anything that he said? Fine with what the Lord might do for them, but let's not obey and submit to his word. And it's on that very word of God that Jesus confronts them quite simply. Look at verse 34. He says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. Continuing verse 35, if he called them gods to whom God's word came, and scripture cannot be broken. One old commentator, I think, wisely said of that final phrase in verse 35, the unbreakable nature of Scripture, that everything that God's Word says must be received reverently and unhesitatingly, that not one jot or tittle of it ought to be disregarded. He continues, every word of Scripture must be allowed its full weight. It must neither be clipped, passed over, or evaded. And he's not going to let the Jewish leaders, Jesus is not going to let the Jewish leaders evade a rather obscure text. Psalm 82 verse 6. That's what he's quoted in verse 34. It's simply a text that depicts Yahweh coming to visit sinful, unjust Israelite judges. And in that psalm, he refers to them as small g, gods. Sons of the Most High. And Jesus is saying... Well, you have no problem in the scriptures with God referring to Israelite leaders. 
unjust ones at that, as gods and sons of the Most High. How much more appropriate is it then? Notice what he says, verse 36, of the one that the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, the one that you say is blaspheming, because he said, I am the Son of God. There's rationality and consistency that he's demanding from the Jews at this point. He says, you must believe in my identity as the Son of God. You must believe in my security that my sovereign care can alone provide. You must believe in the testimony of my works and word. Surely to all of you in here today, it's the same summons. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Those of us that have been to seminary, those of you that have been to university and college studies, I'm sure have only a precious few moments from such studies, you know, kind of stamped into your brain. No doubt with the passage of time, you have even fewer with each following decade. And I think one of those moments that will probably be forever written on my mind, I trust, comes from my seminary studies. I was sitting in a doctoral seminar on New England theology in the 18th century with a man who was one of my favorite seminary professors I ever had. And he was there in front of the room as he was so gifted in doing, you know, waxing, powerful, and, and poetic uh, to all of us on these themes when he somewhat offhandedly referred to this sermon that he said, quote, is the best thing ever written in the English language. And when you hear hyperbole like that, and you're someone like me, you got to go find the sermon. That's that good. And it's a sermon that was written by a New England pastor in the 18th century called The Excellency of Christ. And it's really quite good. And there's a section in there after he's meditating on the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. He gets to a point where faithful preachers always get. Or he says, quote, let me induce you for a few reasons to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Kids, that's a fancy way of saying, let me give you a few encouragements for believing in Jesus. Let me do that here in the last few verses before us in John 10. Three specific encouragements that I find in these final verses. The first of which, there's, there's encouragement from his invitation. Encouragement from his invitation. Look at verse 37 and 38. He continues telling the religious leaders, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. It's always important to recognize, for shepherds and sheep alike in local churches like ours, that the essence of Christ's ministry, therefore the, the, the essence and heart of gospel ministry is an invitation. You know, think of all the times Jesus ministers truth to people and he's intent on inviting them. Come to me. Draw near to me. Come and receive. If we don't recognize that at the heart of Jesus' ministry is the tone of an invitation, Trust me, we've, we've missed a lot more than we realize in Christ's ministry. Because he's always inviting people. And he's always inviting all kinds of people. 
Who's he inviting here? Men still holding rocks with which they want to murder Jesus. Believe the works, he says. If you don't want to believe the word, believe the works. Because you're going to see that those works actually reveal the truth about who I am. And what I have come to do. Men who in that moment deserve nothing more than Jesus leaving them in the midst of the death of their sin. What does he do? One more time. He says, you can believe in me. Just pay attention to what you have seen. And you're going to see the truth of who I am. There's an encouragement in his invitation. Because always in the preaching of the gospel, that's what the word and spirit is doing. Come. Welcome Jesus Christ today. If he can invite the murderer's row that is these rabble-rousers of religious leaders. He can invite you. And he does. But there's also an invitation. I'm sorry, there's also an encouragement in his preservation. Look at verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands. You know, students, it's striking to you as you read the Gospels how Jesus is so slippery disappears from these scenes. I even had someone come up to me at the door a few weeks ago when he just slipped out of the temple and, and rightly asked me, well, how did he actually do that? And in many ways, I have no idea is the only answer that you can give. He just disappears, slips away, slinks out of the building, and somehow nobody notices. He's preserved. According to God's sovereign plan, why? Because his hour had not yet Come. He came to lay down his life for the sheep. The time had not yet come for him to lay down his life for the sheep. But when the time came for him to lay down his life for the sheep, there was no preservation that fell upon Jesus in that moment. But only condemnation. I want you to see an encouragement here in his determination to get to that cursed cross at Calvary. But no doubt the third encouragement you need to leave with is the one that John leaves you with, which is encouragement from his separation. Look at the final three verses. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. The reason I say it's an encouragement from his separation because John's not making a statement that's important for its geographical implications as much as it's important for its theological significance. He's left Jerusalem to go out into the wilderness. He's left the place of the insiders who have rejected him. Separating to the place of the outsiders where people come and seek and find him in a desert area. He's left the place where you would assume he would have heard lots of faith and belief. And he's going to a place where you didn't think he would necessarily find it. And here's the encouragement from the separation. John's gospel is going to make clear to us. This was the last time he ever invited a Jewish religious leader in his life and ministry. They're never going to get it again. How many times when you show up? On a Sunday is an invitation made. 
you must believe in Jesus Christ. And you, like them, may not know this is the last time you're ever going to get it. Believe in the testimony. Believe in the security. Believe in the identity that he is the Messiah. The good shepherd who has come to save his sheep and he's calling out to you today. Are you now going to be numbered among the many who believe and who listen to his voice? Let's pray together. Father, we ask even this day that as you care for us by your word and spirit, you would speak to us those wonderful words of life, uh, that we might be able to say, we heard the voice of Jesus say, come and believe. Stir within us that faith this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.